Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Albertsons and Rite Aid announce an agreement to merge, Tops files for bankruptcy, Puerto Rico gets financing approval, and an outlook of the offshore market. And on our deep dive segment, our legal analysts and members of our event-driven team sat down to discuss an increasing regulatory hurdle to gain merger approval, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, and how it's adding a layer of uncertainty to Chapter 11 transactions and other companies in our coverage, we highlight Takata, Westinghouse, and GNC, among others. It's Sunday, February 25th. After the President's Day long weekend, Rite Aid and Albertsons announced that the two companies have entered into a merger agreement. Under the agreement, privately held Albertsons companies, the grocery chain, will merge with publicly traded Rite Aid, the nationwide pharmacy chain. Rite Aid's CEO, John Stanley, who will be the CEO of the merged company, said that this transaction, quote, takes us from being the number three drugstore player and combines us with the number two conventional grocer in the country to create the differentiated leader in food, health, and wellness. Now, due to the geographic overlap, Rite Aid said that the transaction will allow them to move to a number one or number two position in certain markets. Other reasons for the transaction include both companies' goal of expanding Rite Aid's pharmaceutical benefit manager, Envision RX, and Albertson's history of achieving synergies from past transactions. The combined company targets a net leverage ratio of under four times, down from a pro forma 4.1 times in June, and four and a half times for Rite Aid standalone. Of course, this target is not without risks. Prior to the merger announcement, Albertsons experienced a 1.8% same-store sales decline, and Rite Aid's revenue fell 5.6% in each company's latest quarter. Both companies experienced an over 30% drop in their respective EBITDAs. I should note that Rite Aid's results exclude the stores it is selling to Walgreens. Albertsons plans to list the merged company's shares on the New York Stock Exchange, following the close. Albertsons received debt commitments for $8.4 billion from various banks. In a comment to Reorg, Albertsons said that Rite Aid's 2020, 2021, and 2023 notes are expected to be redeemed or otherwise satisfied and discharged at or before closing. In the merger agreement, the companies excluded Rite Aid's 2027 and 2028 notes from their redemption plans. The companies expect the merger to close in the second half of this year. And continuing with the theme of mergers, Paragon Offshore's journey into and out of bankruptcy ended this week with Thursday's announcement that it has agreed to be bought by Bohr Drilling for $232 million. Paragon's fleet consists of 32 units, including 31 jackups. 
one of the week's most read stories at Reorg was an outlook on the offshore market by our reporter Jim Holloway in Houston. Jim, is this deal consistent with the trends you discussed? Thanks, Catherine. And yes, bore drilling has been shopping again. Something of a startup in the rig contractor space, bore drilling is registered in Bermuda. Its operational headquarters are in Dubai, where their Australian-born CEO lives, and its financial headquarters are in Norway, of which Scandinavian nation the CFO, COO, board chairman, and a director are citizens. And in case you are wondering, as I certainly was, in Norse mythology, Bor was the father of Odin, who I guess you'd describe as the chairman of the board of the Norse pantheon. Anyway, about a year ago, Bor emerged on the scene when it bought a couple of high-spec jackups from Hercules offshore, and then 15 high-spec jackups from Transocean. As you mentioned, Catherine, the Paragon purchase brings him 31 jackups and one semi-submersible. Two of the jackups are of the high-spec, harsh environment JU-2000E design and are currently at work in the North Sea. But now what's interesting is that 21 of Paragon's older, uncontracted units are stacked. And what's even more interesting than that are comments from Chairman Tor Olav Troim. I apologize if I mispronounced that. I don't think that many dragon ships made it up the Ogeechee River into the Atchafalaya Bayou back in the day. Uh, anyways, Chairman Troim comments suggest that these old units may be bound for Valhalla. Bore drilling, Chairman Troim said, will focus on its modern high-spec assets, and I quote, Based on the high reactivation costs, safety standards, and drilling efficiency, it is likely that most of these units will not be marketed for new drilling contracts. Responsible owners, Chairman Troim said, should take steps to rationalize the fleet and consolidate the fragmented market. Now, a couple of themes here that we touched on in the piece. First, the North Sea is leading the recovery in the offshore market. Second, the size of the global fleet desperately needs to reach an equilibrium, and this will require consolidation and scrapping. Bohr seems to be leading the charge in the jackup market, but the, all, but the deep water players have not been idle. As our story noted, which cited research done by Basso Offshore in Norway, about 100 deep water rigs have been marked for recycling since 2014, and as many as 340 could be gone by 2020. As far as consolidation goes, there's the INSCO purchase of Atwood, Transocean's purchase with Sanga Offshore, which is something of a put on the North Sea, and of course, we're all waiting to see what happens around Blue Mountain and Ocean Rig. Now, at this point, I don't think anyone does not expect Offshore to not recover. Even the resolutely grim Todd Hornbeck sees recovery conditions starting to gel. Eventually, the majors will need to replenish reserves, and for that, they'll need the big offshore discoveries. We've seen announcements of big discoveries from the likes of Exxon offshore Guyana, Chevron and Shell in the Gulf of Mexico. There's big lease sales coming up this year in the Gulf of Mexico as well as offshore Mexico. And like their onshore peers, the majors have used the downturn to squeeze costs from the system, so a lot of these offshore prospects may well need be economic at 60 or 55 or 50 a barrel. A lot depends, though, on when activity will ramp up enough to permit the contractors to dem demand day rates above OPEX. Bohr itself has said that it expects jack-up day rates to start rising in 2019, maybe further out for floaters. Eventually, as was the case in the Permian and other onshore basins, the service companies may be able to price the premium, and the MPs may start mentioning cost inflation on their earnings calls. We're not there yet, of course, and it's hard to say when we will be, but it's safe to say that the fog is lifting. Back to you, Catherine. Thanks, Jim. A great read for any of our subscribers who have access. 
now tops holding filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District Court of New York early on Wednesday. The New York-based supermarket retailer disclosed dip financing commitments from an ad hoc note holder committee for an $125 million term loan facility, as well as pre-petition ABL lenders for an $140 million post-petition asset-based revolver. Prior to the filing, Top says it was in discussions with its major stakeholders, including an ad hoc committee of creditors collectively holding more than 70% of the company's senior secured notes with regards to a consensual deleveraging transaction. The DIP term loan requires the company to enter into a restructuring support agreement with the ad hoc note holder committee within 75 days of the commencement date. Although the vast majority of top stores generate positive EBITDA, the company says it is experiencing historically low EBITDA generation as a result of industry pressures. The reduced EBITDA has increased the company's leverage and has imposed significant strains on liquidity and cash flows. At the debtor's first day hearing, while Goschel, as counsel to Tops, told the court that the company intends to keep nearly all of its store locations open and operating. While the debtors have engaged Hilco to help the company evaluate and pursue improvements of its lease terms, the debtors do not expect a lot of store closings or a substantial footprint modification, while Gottschall said. Counsel added that the fact that Topps secured lenders provided dip financing supports the debtors' view that Topps is not going anywhere. And it was an active week for Puerto Rico. On the Monday holiday, Judge Laura Swain entered an order approving the amended financing motion filed by the PROMESA Oversight Board and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority which will allow PREPA to borrow $300 million on an unsecured, super-priority basis. The request for $300 million in financing followed the court's recent decision not to approve PREPA's request to borrow up to $1 billion from the Commonwealth. The Puerto Rico Treasury Department announced later in the week that it had released the $300 million in loan proceeds to PREPA. In addition, the Treasury Department's most recent fiscal 2018 weekly cash flow variance report for its single account reported a cash position of just over $1.6 billion as of February 9th, while sales and use tax inflows into the general fund were about $1.4 million higher than forecast. A Treasury Department spokesperson told Reorg Research that the pledged sales tax base amount, which relates to the amount of sales and use tax collections required to be transferred to COFINA, was satisfied last week. As a result, the government is now receiving that pledged portion of the consumption levy for the remainder of the fiscal year, which ends June 30th. AFAF has not yet identified the projected application of the additional funds received from the pledged portion of the consumption levy that the Commonwealth is now receiving, but noted in the TSA report for February 9th that the TSA may be required to provide funding to PRASA and additional funding to PREPA. Our top red stories of the week were, one, the shape of potential offshore recovery uncertain as signs of bottom emerge, two, tops files chapter 11 in face of 
unsustainable debt load, and three, bore drilling to buy Paragon offshore for $232.5 million. And now I'll pass it over to Jim for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Catherine. And yes, it's a busy week ahead. On Monday, February 26th, we have the long-awaited East Side plan confirmation hearing in the EFH cases, as well as a confirmation hearing in Castex, which, like Fieldwood, is a Gulf of Mexico shelf operator and a Riverstone portfolio company. There's also a DS hearing for seed drill. A gaggle of earnings begins with California Resources, Intelsat, and Comstock Resources, all scheduled to report before the market opens. Tuesday, February 27th, brings a combined Bland and DS hearing for RAND Logistics. And the earnings parade continues with results from Frontier, Community Health, Hertz, and Jones Energy, all after the market closes. For Hertz, pay attention to any gap between cash flows generated by car rentals and the company's financing costs, a trend that has moved against the company over the last 12 months and that Reorg analyzed last year. Earnings calls are scheduled for Jones, Hertz, and Community Health on Wednesday, February 28th. Look for Jones to field questions about possible joint ventures in its merge acreage and other possible liability management and capital raising exercises as it seeks to develop that asset. Earnings in a conference call are scheduled for Valiant Pharmaceuticals before the market opens. Ultra Petroleum's first quarter earnings and call are set for later in the morning. Thursday, March 1st, brings omnibus hearings for Toys R Us and Avion, as well as earnings from Avaya and Unity. Unities are due after the close with a 4.15 conference call. It may face more questions regarding the Winstreet Aurelius litigation, which it declined to answer on its third quarter call in November. The week's earnings conclude on, on Friday, March 2nd, with J.C. Penney's before the open with a conference call at 8.30 a.m. In early January, the company reported that its comp sales rose 3.4% over the holiday period with double-digit sales growth from its e-commerce business. And that's all for this week. And if the good Lord's willing and the creek don't rise, we'll see you all next week. Back to you, Catherine, in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now this week, our legal team at Reorg and members of our event-driven team sat down to discuss Cepheus approval and how it added a layer of uncertainty to Chapter 11 cases, such as Takata and Westinghouse, plus how it could affect GNC's recent announcement of a potential equity investment. I'm Teresa Lee, and here with me is legal analyst Karen Leong from our New York office, as well as Andrew Lowenthal and Lucas Ballot from Event Driven in Washington, D.C. We've seen a number of asset sales in Chapter 11 increasingly involving foreign entities. However, selling to foreign entities can add increased scrutiny that may lead to delays and potentially rejection of the sale itself. One factor is increased review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, which reviews the national security implications of foreign investments in U.S. companies or operations. So, today we're going to be taking a look at CFIUS as a challenge that these transactions can face. Our focus will be on cases we've seen in Chapter 11, as well as out-of-court restructurings. Today, we'll be discussing Westinghouse, Takata, and GNC. Karen, who was previously with Deckert, has followed each of these cases. Lucas was a former staff attorney at the FTC Bureau of Competition, and Andrew was a staff director for the Senate Banking Subcommittee on Securities. So Karen, let's start with you. Obtaining approval from a government regulatory entity can be a hurdle to going effective for many Chapter 11 plans. Westinghouse, the nuclear services company and a subsidiary of Toshiba, was an interesting situation. 
It seemed that national security concerns could be an issue, and Cepheus filed a notice in the Westinghouse case last June, right? That's right. Westinghouse, Toshiba's U.S.-based nuclear subsidiary, filed for Chapter 11 last April. The company had experienced significant delays and cost overruns in the construction of nuclear plants in Georgia and South Carolina. That was a major factor in the filing. And soon after the bankruptcy filing, there were numerous press reports suggesting that U.S. government officials wanted to keep the Westinghouse assets out of the hands of Chinese buyers. The implication was that if Westinghouse did pursue a sale with a Chinese buyer, an additional step in the Chapter 11 process would be getting clearance from Cepheus. Ultimately, Westinghouse did find a non-Chinese buyer. In January, the debtors announced they'd reached an agreement with Brookfield to be purchased for $4.6 billion. It's really not too clear from the outside whether or not the government's concerns led the company to seek a non-Chinese buyer, but interesting nonetheless. So I'm going to jump to Lucas and Andrew in our D.C. office for a bit of background on Cepheus here. Lucas? Thanks for the introduction. I am Lucas Ballot, a legal analyst at EventDriven, and with me is Andrew Lowenthal, an analyst at EventDriven who has done extensive work on Cepheus. Andrew, turning to you, can you tell us a little bit about what Cepheus is and why it's increasingly important in many of today's cross-border transactions? Sure, and thank you, Lucas, for the introduction. Cepheus is um, an increasingly important uh, regulatory panel in the area of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, most recently, it's been processing close to 300 foreign investment inbound transactions that come to the U.S. per year. So if you're a foreign company uh, or have a relationship with a foreign government, you go through CFIUS. Uh, Ten years ago, CFIUS processed about 100 deals a, a, a year, and they're up, as I said, to about three to 400. Nine agencies sit on CFIUS the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, Department of State, Department of Commerce, United States Trade Representative, and it's chaired by the Treasury Department. So you get a view from both the security side and the economic side. And what role does the current political climate play in CFIUS reviews? Which type of buyers have had the most difficulty navigating CFIUS's review? In this climate, the deals that involve enterprises that are based in or supported by China have had the highest level of scrutiny. And this is a real change, I think, whereas China had always had a level of scrutiny, it's now at the level that we would accord a purchase that was coming from Russia or Iran or other kinds of countries. CFIUS is a national security screen, but that definition of national security is very elastic and expansive and can meet the policy objectives of a new administration as it tries to reset U.S. economic security issues with our trading partners and other countries around the world. Right. So just as an example, Bloomberg Politics said last April that according to three U.S. officials, Cabinet members, including Energy Secretary Rick Perry and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, had discussed preventing a Westinghouse purchase by Chinese-linked companies. What about Westinghouse would attract that kind of attention from the U.S. government? Well, we can take a look at some of the national security-related concerns that were reported on at the time. The concern was the disclosure of sensitive information on nuclear technology. A New York Times piece in April said, American officials are profoundly concerned 
about the potential national security implications of a purchase of Westinghouse by interests with ties to the Chinese government, including the danger that a sale could deliver sensitive nuclear secrets to that nation. Bloomberg also previously said that Westinghouse had been, quote, the repeated target of Chinese espionage. So what did the U.S. government do in that case? Well, in early June, June Kim, the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, filed a notice in the Westinghouse case on behalf of CFIUS. And here's what the statement said. CFIUS has the authority to review any acquisition by a foreign person that could result in foreign control of debtors or of their components or assets that constituted U.S. business. Moreover, if CFIUS identifies any national security concerns with such acquisition, CFIUS or the president could take action that affects the ability of the parties to complete the transaction, the timing of the completion, and or the terms of the transaction. That seems to be pretty broad language. Well, it's a carefully worded notice, but it could be interpreted as a reminder from the U.S. government that it has pretty wide jurisdiction and would be interested in reviewing asset sales in the Westinghouse case. So, Karen, you also followed Takata, the auto parts and airbag manufacturer. Takata's plan was just confirmed in Delaware, and the debtors have noted that they need to obtain CFIUS approval before the plan goes effective. What is the timeline for CFIUS approval and emergence for the debtors? Takata's Chapter 11 plan provides for the sale of substantially all their assets that don't relate to PSAN airbag inflators to key safety systems, which is owned by Chinese company Ningbo Joyson Electronic Corporation. At the confirmation hearing in Delaware, Takata's lawyer said that CFIUS began its investigation of the transaction in mid-January, and that investigation period has now been extended to March 26th. Under a plea agreement with the Department of Justice related to their defective airbags, Takata had until February 27th to close its sale transaction, and now the DOJ has agreed to extend that deadline to April 13th because of CFIUS's extended investigation period. So let me go back to Lucas and Andrew to talk about what CFIUS may be looking for when they're reviewing the Takata transaction. Lucas? What are the steps in CFIUS's review of a transaction? That's a great question, Lucas. There are really uh, as a number of steps, but the basics are that once you make a, and, and CFIUS is voluntary, so the parties themselves generally have to come to the conclusion that they would be covered under CFIUS. Of course, the penalty for not voluntarily filing is that CFIUS will come back after you and unwind your deal, so the onus generally is to file ahead of time. There's usually some iterative process. There's an initial 30-day review that can then be expended, extended to another 45 days for deeper investigation for a total timetable of 75 days. However, while in the past it was unusual for deals to have to get through those 75 days, we are finding more and more that even non-controversial deals are requiring longer than 75 days, which often will cause a party to do something called a pull and refile. Before the clock runs out and a decision is forced upon you, you pull your petition and then you refile again as a new petition and get yourself a new clock. And again, given the volume of CFIUS filings, the trebling of the number of projects that they look at, and the heightened scrutiny when China is done, it's hard to say that 75 days is the, uh, is the outside limit. The CFIUS reviews can go on for as long as a year uh, in some cases, um, but we're filing, finding even in non-controversial deals, 150 days 
225 days is not unusual. And particularly with deals involving Chinese acquirers, we see those extended reviews, right? Yes, and particularly because there is a deep dive usually into ownership structures and other kinds of relationships, and it is a time-consuming process. I would highlight for those who like to follow litigations, uh, the Ness engineering litigation against Pactor gives a very good insight into how long even what seems like a routine CFIUS transaction can take in terms of the iterative process and the depth to which CFIUS staff will go to understand the Chinese enterprise's relationship to the Chinese government and other players. And what specific issues uh, related to key safety systems acquisition of Takata have you identified and how do you think the companies will fare in CFIUS review? I think that the presence of the of key safety systems ownership by a Chinese enterprise is the the critical component here. And in this environment, what's important to remember is that the presence of a Chinese participant in and of itself constitutes a national security question at CFIUS, not just what the underlying product lines are. Takata on its face, of course, should seem something that would not raise many national security concerns. But as you do dig deep into what Takata offers, their sensors, their other kinds of technology could be something that CFIUS explores in addition to those things that are commercially and easily available. CFIUS is going to be looking at whether there could be an unwanted or unwarranted transfer of technology from Takata to China that would be against the national security interests of the United States. And I would expect it to be a rather lengthy review, even if they can get to the point of, of giving it uh, their approval. Great. Uh, thank you, Andrew, very much for that discussion. Teresa, turning it back to you. Thanks, Lucas. So, Karen, the bankruptcy plan has been confirmed, but there's also a CFIUS review. Is there a risk that the plan does not go effective, and is there a termination date on the plan? Well, April 13th is now the sale-closing milestone that the debtors have with the Department of Justice. At the confirmation hearing, Takata's counsel said they're confident the global transaction will be able to close within the extended investigation period of March 26th, and that the parties agreed on the April 13th deadline out of an abundance of caution. It's interesting because many Chapter 11 debtors face a time crunch. No one really wants to be in Chapter 11 for longer than they have to, uh, for instance, for reasons of cash burn. And many debtors also have milestones to meet under their restructuring support agreement or dip credit agreement. In Takata's case, they had a sale closing deadline, which was dictated by parent TKJP's criminal plea agreement with the Department of Justice. So that's a deadline that would appear more rigid than most. The entire case, the debtors emphasized the need to meet this February 2018 deadline, and it really shaped the direction of the proceedings since they filed for Chapter 11 last June. But at the confirmation hearing, they told us that the DOJ did agree to move this deadline by a month and a half because of pending CFIUS review. In Takata, the debtors obtained a purchase commitment from key safety systems before filing for Chapter 11. But CFIUS review also has implications for other kinds of distressed asset sales, for example, Section 363 sales during a bankruptcy case, right? Yeah, that's right. In a Section 363 sale, the debtors are looking for the highest and best bid. Timing and the uncertainty of CFIUS approval could play a part in what's considered the best bid, and we've seen security concerns play a role in sale cases before. 
Security concerns in Hawker Beechcraft are some of the reasons cited as to why the aerospace manufacturing company scuttled a transaction with China's superior aviation Beijing company. Similarly, battery maker A123 sold its government contracts separately from the rest of its business to allay security concerns. Ultimately, it did obtain CFIUS approval. Thanks for that update, Karen. And we'll definitely continue to monitor the review process and any developments in Takata. Now I'd like to switch over to another company, GNC, a specialty retailer of health and wellness products, which we cover closely here at Reorg. The company recently announced a proposed equity investment from Harbin, which is a subsidiary of China's large investment company, Citic. This investment could potentially help the company extend maturities by a couple of years, saving off a potential restructuring for the time being. Is CFIUS Review something that GNC should be concerned about? Well, here's what the event-driven team had to say about GNC. Surprising as it may seem, CIDIC's investment in GNC will have to go through the CFIUS process, which the company alluded to in a recent 8K. Even though one doesn't really normally think about GNC as having an intersection with U.S. national security. However, CFIUS would want to ensure that there's no problematic Chinese access to any personal information of GNC customers, financial, health, or otherwise. CIDIC will, in and of itself, attract heightened scrutiny because it's directly owned by the Chinese government. CFIUS would also want to understand why the Chinese government wants to own any part of GNC. It should be expected that CFIUS review would be lengthy and could involve multiple filings, which is known as pull and refile, as the event-driven team discussed. That pull and refile typically occurs after the 75-day period, consisting of a 30-day initial review and 45-day investigation. Thanks, Karen. And thank you to Andrew and Lucas for being here with me today. GNC is another company that we will continue to follow closely, along with Westinghouse and Takata, which are the other two names that we've discussed today. That wraps up this week's discussion of CFIUS. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast. 